from Didache 8. But as for your fasts, let them not be with the hypocrites, for they fast on the second and fifth days of the week. But do your fasting on the fourth and the sixth days. And neither pray like the hypocrites, but as the Lord has commanded us in his gospel, so pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil. For thine is the power and the glory forever. Three times a day, pray this. The Lord be with you. Uh, Before I get started, I would like to just offer a word of caution. There are these back on the scoop. Uh, my friend Avi, who was helping us out with music this morning, put them there. It's a sticker that says, give your stuff away. So be careful what you put it on, because somebody might expect you to do just that. That is all. <laughs> this message is to be my final contribution as a member of this staff and as a member of this body. Is a reminder to me that all things, even good things, must end. I certainly hope it has been a good thing, but as I wrote in uh, one of my final support letters, if it has been a good thing at all, it has been the most so for me. So thank you for letting me serve. Um, As for tonight, we are beginning a trek through what is commonly referred to as the Lord's Prayer, uh, or for some, the Our Father. Uh, Perhaps it is more appropriately entitled the Disciples' Prayer. We'll see. Several different pastors and speakers from several different congregations around the city are going to be participating in this. So I thought this, is, this would be a fun way to go out. And so I harangued Mike into letting me do this. Uh, it'll be okay, I told him, because if I were to inadvertently spawn some kind of heresy, you can just tell everybody that I was fired. <laughs> I don't plan to, but you never know. Uh, so, Craig Blomberg. 
tells us in his terrific handbook of New Testament exegesis that approaching the scriptures can be a lot like catching one side of a conversation, you know, a phone call or an email. After all, the events and topics in scripture are embedded in an historical and cultural context. It is about a particular event or circumstance, and it it is addressed to a particular audience who would have understood exactly what was being communicated. It really is quite simple, and without this very basic understanding, it is quite possible, even with the best of intentions, to spawn said heresy, or at the very least, make a big mess for someone to have to clean up. So, I'd like to contribute to this conversation then by setting the context uh, of this text where we find the Lord's Prayer and to take a look as best we are able at what he is saying and what his physically present hearers would have uh, taken away from that particular encounter with the Lord. Um, I don't think that this is an unattainable thing. You don't have to have a specialized degree in anything to be able to do this. Um, And so I think it's quite possible for anyone to do it. And I'll even go so far as to say that as sincere followers of Christ, we are quite expected to do it. It is our responsibility to do it, to understand the scriptures. So I will begin with a story. Imagine, if you will, a family moving to Texas. A family called the Warner family moving to Texas. Uh, This is a story that that begins back in somewhere in the middle of May, somewhere in the past. There's a decision made that that is hidden from the world until it is finally proclaimed the Warner family is moving to Texas. What the Warner family begins to do at that point is to begin to live out of that reality, that reality that has not come to be fulfilled yet, but is is nonetheless certain. Decisions are made based upon this future coming event of the Warner family will be moving to Texas. Um, Certain events begin to unfold. We buy plane tickets. We shut off utilities. We rent a truck. We pack the truck. Uh, We send the... Uh, my wife and kids down there. We have me by my onesies here in Denver. All of these events must transpire before we actually move our crap 1,000 miles to the south and set up shop and get jobs and begin to live in Texas. Then the proclamation of the Warners are going to live in Texas will have been fulfilled. But for right now, it's just coming. So you could say, that the beginning of this, when we announced back in May, the Warners are moving to Texas, is kind of like Advent, in a way. It is kind of like the pronunciation, you know, Emmanuel has come. Not, not exactly, you know. <laughs> but there, there's a point I'm getting at. <laughs> it, it is a point where, where you're living in three different realities at once. You're living in what has happened in the past. You're living in the fulfillment of the promise and looking for the certainty of what is to come. So you have an advent and you have now and you have the second advent. Hold on to that because that's really important later. 
A second little element of this in, in the Warner family moving to Texas is that when the decision was made, there wasn't, um, there wasn't the family round table of, um, so Warner family, let's move to Texas. And my two-year-old would say, no, because that's what she does. Um, <laughs> there, there, there was discussion along the lines of how are we going to do this? Are, are you crazy for thinking this? And, and some other things, but as a family, this decision was made, and as a family, we begin to function and begin to live out this certainty of what's coming that is not now, but we're living as though it really, really matters that we're doing this. That's the other part I want you to hold on to. We want to hold on to that there's three different times, and we have to live in the tension of all three of those, and that a family functions as one. So to put this into context, to put the Lord's Prayer into context, let me just say, the context of Jesus, the context of anything Jesus is doing in the Gospels, is the kingdom of God. It is the fulfillment of the promise that Yahweh himself will come and bring his justice and dwell among his people. The promise that the king of Israel, the son of David, the holy vine of David, as, as we say in, in, the, in the prayers of communion in morning church, um, when we come to the Lord's table, that this king would come and dwell in the holy city. Remember now that Israel has been in, ex in exile many times and for many hundreds of years and is currently ruled over by a Gentile nation. So it, it really hasn't gotten much better for them. They have been waiting a long time, many hundreds and hundreds of years. And who can blame them? Hope is starting to fade just a little bit. And many pseudo-messiahs have come up. And, the, and these are people who, who knew the scriptures, who knew their history, and knew that, um, that the messiah was going to come and make this all better. And so you have these false messiahs that would tend to rise up and say, we're going to take up our arms and we're going to kick these Romans out of here. Or or the way is to retreat into the desert and pray the kingdom to come, whatever. There, there's all these different ways that they tried to make it come. But the end result was the same for every insurrection, for every false leadership. You could go outside the city walls and see dozens and dozens of crosses with these pseudo-messiahs nailed up. That doesn't really promote a whole lot of hope either. It paints a very bleak picture, I think, captured very, very colorfully in that song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. More than that, it is, a bleak, it is bleakly reminiscent of another time in the history of Israel, the bondage in Egypt, waiting to be delivered out of exile. And it is here that we're going to begin to understand what it means when we pray, Our Father. It's a pretty popular notion that Jesus is the one that first introduced the idea of Yahweh as Father, but that's not entirely correct. Um, I don't use Keynote. I don't use any of those fancy programs. So I am going to read to you directly from the Bible. Go figure. <laughs> and we're going to pick this up in Exodus. Exodus. Chapter 4, 22 through 23. 
uh, we're looking at what the Lord is telling to go, Moses to go say to the Pharaoh. Then say to the Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you to let him go so that he may worship me. But you refused to let him go. And we know what happens from there. The strong point of this is that Israel is my son. Israel is my son. Later, from the stories of David, the Lord God is promising David that one of his descendants would be the ruler of the people of God and that his kingdom would never be shaken. It would be 2 Samuel 7, 11 through 14. Speaking to David. Sorry, I pulled up the wrong passage. Second Samuel 7. You can blame the iPad for that. <laughs> you know what? I'll paraphrase it. Second Samuel 11:14. The Lord is telling David the promise of one of his descendants after you're gone. You're your bones, your dust, but your legacy is that one of your descendants, one of your flesh and blood descendants is going to come. And he is going to be the king of Israel. His, king, his kingdom will never be shaken, and he will be my son, and I will be his father. He will be my son, and I will be his father. The Lord, the Lord declares to you, that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. You see, the work of Jesus, as it is, in, as it is shown in the Gospels, is tied to Israel. The identity of Jesus is tied to Israel. His understanding of himself and his mission are tied to Israel. The primary work of Jesus was the fulfillment of the Messiah promise that God himself would come and dwell among his people and lead them out of exile. This is the kingdom come. And thank the Lord that the end of the thing is so much bigger than just Israel, as evidenced by us here tonight. But at this point in the story, at the point where Jesus is sitting on the mountain and speaking to his disciples and all of those who are around and, and able to hear is, is where we need to stay if we're going to really understand this. At the point where the Lord is instructing his disciples, we need to continue to try to hear this with Jewish ears. According to the ancient Hebrew lexicon of the Bible by a fellow named Jeff A. Brenner, Benner, and I don't know him like I know Craig Blomberg, so I can't, you know, raz him personally here. Um, we take a look, and I'm not going to read all the technical stuff about it, but we take a, if you take a look at the word for father, and the very root of it is ab, ab. And you have all of these different variations that come off of it, but what you find out if you go down this trail 
is that the father of a family provides strength, support, and structure to the household. The father fulfilled many functions for the family. He was the commander of the family army, provider of offspring to continue the family line, the priest and the teacher. A father can be of the immediate family, as Simon is my son, or a father can be of a lineage, such as Jacob is the father of um, Abraham, is the father of Israel. Um, Jacob is the father of the Israelites. A father can also be a patron or of a profession or an art. Uh, it could be uh, you have a master carpenter and his apprentice, and he is called Abba. Uh, in the same way, uh, a relationship to a rabbi or a priest, you would address them as father, although they are not your, they are not your father, and they are certainly not your source. But you address them as such, as a, as a gesture of authority and reverence. All of this out of that tiny little word, ab, and, and its little nuances there. After carefully examining this, examining the scriptures, we come to the conclusion that ab is the customarily and most frequently used title in prayer, um, which comes from the primitive word ab. And pursuing that down a little bit further, you go on to see that Abba can be traced back to the name of Abram, which is Strong's word number 87, if you're into that sort of thing. The original name for Abraham, meaning high father or exalted father. Now let's go back again. Once again, the work of Jesus as shown in the Gospels is tied to Israel, is tied to the identity of Israel as a people. Um. And what you have is Yahweh in the flesh publicly identifying with his people. And so now we come to Matthew 5, where we find the Lord teaching, um, going into Matthew 6, where we find the Lord teaching on prayer. Jesus sits on a hillside um, and teaches, which is a typical rabbinical posture. The text mentions a crowd and his disciples. The likely scenario is that he was instructing his followers and the crowd was listening in. And he began to teach them about the kingdom. He began to teach them about the kingdom. And the kingdom is like this, not like that. You have heard it said this, but I'm telling you that. And it's not that he's undermining everything. It's that I believe he's revealing the heart of God in everything beyond the rules and beyond the things that it has become. It has become a matter of the heart and the matter of the kingdom. I tell you this, not that. We get into Matthew 6. Do, and do not pray like the hypocrites, which um, were these actors that wore masks and did these public performances. Um, I don't think it's necessarily an insult, but I suppose it could be directed at some. For they love to pray in the synagogues and are standing on the street corners as to be seen by others. Oh, Lord, Abba. And this big dramatic demonstration. Truly, I tell you, they've already received their reward in full. But when you pray, counter to that, go into your room, close the door and pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep babbling on like the pagans and 
what we're referring to here is obviously the pagans, the non-Jewish population, and the Roman and the pagan deities. Now, life like that would be, let's say, there's a problem in my life that I need to address a God for. Under that system, I don't know exactly which God I need to be talking to, and I don't know exactly what's going to coerce them into answering my prayer. So when I go to pray, I'm going to have to address all of them in many different ways and hope that one of them is going to go, huh, maybe I'll do that. This is what he's saying. Don't do that. You don't have to do that. Our Father. Do not keep babbling on like the pagans, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. We're beginning to identify family. We're beginning to identify you belong. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven. And I'm stopping there because my part in the con- that's my part in this conversation, um, and that's all we need to know for right now. Our Father. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray like this, he was bringing into play two very distinctive identifying characteristics about the kingdom of God. One, that he himself is the fulfillment of the promise that he is Emmanuel, God is with us. And two, that he calls his disciples by a family name and teaches them to pray as such. I am the Lord, the king who has come, and you are my people. You are the people of the promise, and the exile is coming to an end. Let's go back to those advents. We have uh, the years and years and years and years of hopelessness. And then weird things start happening like angels showing up in the Holy of Holies and showing up and talking to a teenage girl and saying all these things. And crazy, crazy prophets out in the desert are starting to say things like, the kingdom of God is, is upon you. The kingdom of God is near. You have that element of the past. You have that element of the present where Jesus is beginning to identify you are the people of the promise. The kingdom is coming. You are the people of the promise and the exile is coming to an end. Now, obviously, the story is much larger than that. You and I are here. Beyond the scope of just Israel, the promise of Messiah and redemption therein has been extended to all people, to creation itself. The story continues on as his disciples become the ones that he sent out, or the apostles. And the kingdom continues to unfold from the first advent all the way through our age and through the age that is to come past us through my children and and maybe their children's children. We do not know this. And all the way until the second advent, when Christ returns, physically returns and establishes his kingdom on earth with absolute finality. And though it looks different from age to age, the kingdom looks different from age to age and place to place and context to context, the kingdom does not change in the way it operates or in the way that we must participate in it. This prayer is a family prayer. 
And if you're anything like me, that may or may not do much for you or bring much comfort to you. Um, Don't be overly surprised at this, but there are some glitches in our contemporary family structure. Sorry. (laughs) Many of our families don't really have a person who fits the above description of Abba, as it were. If you're anything like me, connecting to a perfect and perfectly abstract father is absurd. For some, jumping into the lap of an Abba daddy seems perfectly reasonable, while for others the idea of Abba is that of a master whom you serve. For some, he may be the commander of God's army. Um, And there may be more. There there probably are more. And none of these are necessarily more right or wrong than the other. But I believe that these differences serve to teach us dependence and trust upon one another. And And it works like this. Some of us learn the idea of a father or a fathering through the relation through a relationship with a person who is a father to us. Um, and all of my time here at SCUM, not only has Mike been just an incredible friend, but he's also served as a father figure to me, watching over me, encouraging me, or giving me a swift kick when I need it. Shaping, molding, mentoring, fathering. Um, You come across a person who has been a father to you, and in return someday, you will serve another in this capacity. That's how the kingdom works. We all, we learn a bit of how an apprentice serves a master through our willing submission to the process of discipleship. If you've been in the military, or if you're familiar with the military at all, you know that your commander is the be-all, end-all. What he or she says goes because you are under their mission. And so on and so on. But the principle underneath all of this is interdependence. We are the family of God, comprised of individual men and women of God, to be sure, but a family nonetheless. This is how Jesus talks about his people. This is how Jesus talks about his church. Period. And so the legacy I want to leave behind uh, for this church is this. And as we have said many times during the morning liturgy, um, one of our cell points, as it were, is that we're a congregation that is connected to the one church in every time and place. And as long as this congregation or any group of Christians that come together um, are drawing their identity and their significance from the Lord and from his kingdom and not from their specific and individual space-time contexts, the church will never falter. The kingdom will not fail. And so I'd like to offer one final prayer as we come to partake from the Lord's table. Bless the Lord and all his people. Bless the coming and going of him. May his presence clean the world. May he keep the world safe for his people. 
and his people for his kingdom now always and forever. So be it.